Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at uh, certain passages in Luke 1 and 2 today. I've been in three different parts, so uh, this is going to be different. I'll be giving three different short sermons that go along with our music and our Bible reading and so forth. So I trust this will be a blessing to you. We're looking at Luke chapter 1 and uh, verses... uh, Started with verse 35 in just a moment. If you've been down south, if you travel through the mountains of, uh, of the south, you might see an exciting little thing off to the side of the major roads, and that's a, a ramp. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those or not, but the uh, first time I saw these going down through the mountains, there was these, this big, long ramp off the side of the road. And I said, and they're kind of going uphill. It's made out of gravel or mud or whatever, sand. And I asked uh, originally years ago, what, what in the world is that ramp about? And somebody said, well, that's for the truckers as they're coming down the mountains uh, carrying coal or wood or, uh, or even uh, semis, and they, uh, and they lose their brakes. Could you imagine that, going down the mountain uh, with a truckload of coal or, or lumber or whatever, and you lose your brakes? And so the goal is, is if that happens to you, you see these ramps, and you take your truck right up that ramp to stop you from dying, Right? So that's the plan. Now, as I first heard about that, that kind of shocked me. I, and I thought, wonder what they're thinking at that moment. Have you, could you imagine what they're thinking? Uh, and do you think there's any atheists at that moment? <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. There's a lot of prayer going up as they're losing their brakes, going down the mountain and praying that one of those ramps are nearby and they're going to be able to hit it just right to survive. So... What they're praying for at that moment, by the way, is not anything to do with the weather or the next sports event. They're, they're praying for their lives. They're praying that somehow they would survive. Heartfelt and fervent prayer reveals our, what's really going on in our minds and hearts, right? And so when we come to the account of the incarnation, uh, principally told us in Matthew and in these two chapters in Luke, uh, we find that the people that are first introduced to the idea of the incarnation... Uh, those who are first, for the first time hearing it and experiencing it turn to prayer. And they turn to prayer with all their hearts, and what's going on inside of them is revealed in their prayers. We're going to look briefly this morning at four different prayers and five different prayers that reveal the heart of people as they are recognizing and experiencing the incarnational event. Then the first one we run into is none other than Mary herself. And uh, the passage was read, so I'm not going to reread that. But Mary is, uh, keep in mind, probably only about 15 years old or younger. Uh, Jewish girls married very young back in those days. And so she wasn't a very old young lady. And yet she's being, being given the most wonderful experience of life. And it tells us here uh, many things that Gabriel's telling her. But it's summarized in verse 35. So chapter 1, verse 35 The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now Mary, no doubt, was steeped in the Jewish teachings of her time. And she knew that the Old Testament taught, and the Jewish rabbis taught, that a Messiah was coming. And that Messiah would come to set the people of Israel free from bondage and would reign over them. So she knew that was happening, it was going to happen sometime, and she knew that a Messiah would be physically born. Of course, she had no idea she would have the privilege of being the one who would birth uh, Jesus Christ. 
So she knew that, but at the end of verse 35, something is given here that almost no, none of the Jewish people knew. There might have been a few exceptions, and we'll see that at the end of our talk today, or look at our sermon today, but, but that he would be the son of God. That was not something the rabbis taught. That was not something the Jewish people expected. A Messiah, yes. The son of God, no. That was not on the agenda. And so Mary is given this, this revelation that she would give birth to a little baby who would be the son of God. Now, what is her reaction to that? What is her prayer in response to what she's just been told? And we find that down in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, Mary didn't understand all the things in front of her. She didn't understand the, the heartaches and the struggles that she would face. She didn't know the crucifixion was coming or the resurrection. None of those things were in her, her doctrinal wheelhouse at this point. She didn't know those things. But she knew that the message she was given was true. And she didn't need to know all those things. She knew who was telling her these things, and he was trustworthy. And therefore, she simply submits to the will of God. That's not normal, is it? Uh, most of us want to know ahead of time uh, what somebody's telling us to do. And if we agree with it, if we like it, if it's explained to us just right, then we will follow it. If not, we're going to balk. That's our, that's our tendencies. But Mary surrenders her will to the Lord. Mary turns and says, be it unto me as according to your word. Complete and total surrender. What, what if I were to tell you, I know the future for your life. Just follow my advice and you'll do well. You ought not do that. <laughs> right? Uh, why? Because you can't trust me knowing the future. Uh, you can trust me maybe knowing the scriptures but you can't trust me knowing the future. And therefore, you better not listen to me because I'm not trustworthy with that. But if God himself is telling us the future, we can believe that because he is trustworthy. And that's where Mary was. Mary knew exactly what that God was trustworthy and she surrendered herself to him. Now, we move on to a second prayer of Mary. Like I said, there's four prayers, but five prayers. The second prayer of Mary is in chapter 1, verses 46 uh, on down, and here she is visiting her relative Elizabeth, who is six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And, Mary, and Elizabeth has just uh, blessed her and is so, so thrilled that Mary is going to give birth to the Son of God. And then Mary uh, turns and prays this wonderful prayer, starting in verse 46, in which uh, she uh, magnifies the Lord. Matter of fact, this phrase here, my soul magnifies or exalts the Lord, is in this whole prayer is in a poetic form. Maybe she sang it. Uh, probably she didn't, but it could be sung. Uh, throughout the church history, it's often been called uh, the uh, Magnificat Cat of Mary because it is uh, mean, because that word means exalted or magnified one. And so we see her magnifying the Lord. Now there's two parts to this prayer. First of all, her experience. She starts with herself. And she says in verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in the God of my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave, and behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. As Mary looks at her own blessedness, the blessing that God is bringing to her, 
I want you to note where she places herself. Her focus is totally on God. She praises the Lord. She doesn't praise herself. She doesn't say, my, I must have been the best of them all. That's why the Lord chose me. I was just head and shoulders above every teenage girl in Israel. Therefore, that's why God chose me. That's never mentioned in Scripture, by the way. Uh, She is chosen because God chose her. And therefore, she magnifies the Lord for what he's doing. And she magnifies God, not herself. Here is the person who is going to be given the greatest privilege of all history. The most blessed event ever to be able to give birth to the Son of God. And yet she points straight to the Savior and not to herself. He has done great things, she says in verse 49, not her. And then she moves immediately into the praise portion of the actual song of prayer itself. And here she praises or celebrates God. At the end of verse 49, she calls him holy. His name is holy. In verse 50, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. So if she starts with the foundation. Who is this God? He is one who is holy and he is one who is merciful. That's a premise. That's where she starts. This is, a, this is the holy God of the universe. None is like him. He's the merciful God of the universe, pouring down mercy on those who do not deserve anything. That's where she starts. And then she moves on in her prayer to talk about a most interesting thing. She talks about who God is, and I think in the context of the coming of Jesus, and what she is saying is God will turn the world upside down. Jesus is coming to turn the world upside down and inside out. Look at these verses with me. Three different things she mentions. First of all, pride. Verse 51. He has done a mighty deed with his arm, and he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. The proud don't impress God. He turns them upside down. He exalts the the humble. Verse 52. How about rulers? He says in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. The, the kings of the earth, the monarchs, the dictators, the, those that have been voted into office, whatever they are, they might think they control the world. They might think they control the universe. They're, they're in charge of the big people of the world. And God says, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed at all. I exalt those who are humble. I pull down the rulers who are not. And then he talks about peace in verse 53. He says, he has, or she, she praises in 53, he has fulfilled, he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. The rich think they have it all under control. The Lord tears that down and replaces them with the blessedness upon the humble and upon the poor. Jesus is turning the world upside down. And we knew, and, and she is talking here about God himself, but, but it's going to be in the incarnation that all this begins to come together. The Lord doesn't come to leave the world as it is. He doesn't come to leave it in a status quo. He's come to change it, to turn it upside down. And she praises God for that very reason. And she praises him because the proud will no longer be proud. The great will no longer be great. The rich will no longer be rich. The Lord will determine the lives of all these people. Jesus is changing everything around us. She celebrates God. She celebrates Christ because he is in absolute and complete control. We look at the incarnation and we think of a baby in a manger. And that's what happened that day. 
God became man in a manger. Took on himself the, for, the form of a human. The God-man in a manger. What could be more innocent than a little baby? What could be more humble than a little baby? And yet the fact is, this little baby is the king of the universe. The monarch over all. He brings down the proud. He exalts the humble. He will change everything and everyone. No wonder Mary's prayers are about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. We're going to go back to Luke, the passage Brian just read to us, chapter 1, verse 68. And we're looking at the prayer of Zacharias, or Zachariah, depending on the translation. Uh, He hasn't spoken for nine months. Some of you appreciate that in your homes. But the reason why is because of his very unmarry-like response to the message given to him by Gabriel concerning his son, who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And now that John the Baptist is, is born, uh, he, he now turns to the Lord in prayer. And we, we pick up his prayer in uh, these verses here. By the way, uh, this time of year, uh, people start arguing about the new, relatively new Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? I, I don't know if you're in on those kind of arguments, but there, everybody starts debating, how much did Mary know? Some people almost make it a test of orthodoxy. You know, I don't know that Mary knew about everything, but we do know what she, we know exactly what she knew in her prayers. And we saw her articulate that very well. But what did Zechariah know? Well, Zechariah knew that he shouldn't doubt his Lord. Mary didn't, but his older priest did. And now the Lord is going to give him his voice back as his son is born. And what does he do immediately upon receiving his voice? What does he pray? And we see his heart now. His heart has changed. He is now in compliance with his Lord. It says in verse 46, And you, child, he's talking about his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. And you will go on before the Lord to make ready his ways. So as he blesses his own son and looks at John the Baptist, he is saying that he realizes this is no ordinary child. This is a child who, who will not be the Messiah. He's not the message. John's not the message. But John is a messenger. And he's going to bring the message of the Son of God. He's going to preach that message. And what is that message? Verse 77. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. It's a message of salvation. And uh, people get tired of hearing that today. Unbelievers don't want to be told they need to be saved. Christians get used to the terminology. But the fact is it never gets old. It's always the same. I just read in a book supposedly by evangelical leaders that uh, the message, the old gospel message of salvation by the forgiveness of sin doesn't play well in this modern generation. Uh, that we need to kind of to upgrade that. What people want today is to thrive. Uh, they want to be happy. They want the good life. And if you present the gospel as something that will allow them to thrive and have the good life and be happy, then they will be responsive. But if you tell them their great need is salvation and forgiveness of sin, well, they don't really want to respond to that. They don't want to hear that. But I got news for you. The old gospel is the same gospel that's always taught throughout the scriptures. And Zechariah caught that. There is one gospel. Yes, being a Christian may very well upgrade your life. I think in many ways it, it will. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes life is tougher for the believer. That's not the gospel message. The message is you are estranged from God, you're separated from God, you're alienated from God, and Jesus Christ has come to save you from that condition and forgive your sins. That is the great need of the moment. 
has always been the great need of the moment. And it certainly is today. And so Zacharias sees that here, as he says in verse 77. He sees now that this message of salvation will come to a messenger in verse 78, because of the tender mercies of God, of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. He's speaking now of Christ, the sunrise, the light of the world, as Jesus is called in chapter 1 of John. And what will be the result of that salvation? I want you to see verse 79. He says this, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to direct our feet into the way of peace. Here is the result of the salvation, the forgiveness of sin. There's three different things he mentions here. Three great ailments of the human race. Three things that we can do nothing about ourselves, even though we think we can. First of all, we cannot overcome the darkness. People are born into darkness. People love the darkness if they're not believers. And so we are living in a spiritual darkness, a philosophical darkness, a darkness that cannot be penetrated by any efforts, any means, any philosophy that we can come up with. Jesus has come to change that. And then he he has come to, to give spiritual life and ultimately physical life to the dead who live in the shadow of death. Death is our great enemy. It is the last enemy that will be conquered according to 1 Corinthians. It, death is inescapable. It's appointed for all of us to die once and then face the judgment of God himself. But Jesus Christ came to conquer death. Jesus Christ would conquer death at the resurrection. He's come that you and I can come, come out from under the shadow of death and the fear of death. And then thirdly, it speaks to, of, in verse 79, to direct our feet in the way of peace. He's come to give us direction. Without the teaching of God's word, without the coming of Jesus Christ, there is no direction. We can go all sorts of ways, but we're, we're lost in, a, in the maze of life. One of the great concerns that, uh, that secular psychologists and philosophers are recognizing today is that people don't have direction. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. Jesus Christ has come to give us the way and the truth and the life that's found only in him. And so Christ has come that the blind can see, that the dead can have life, and those who are at war can have peace, peace with him and peace within our own hearts. A number of years ago, and I've never actually seen this card, but I've read about it, somebody created a Christmas card in which Jesus had never been born. What would life be like if Jesus had not been born? Well, we can speculate about that, and we can look into that, but I think Zechariah nailed it right here. If Jesus had not been born, we would be blind. We would be living in darkness, and we would know, have no idea how to get out of it. If Jesus had not been born, then we'd be facing death with no hope of eternity, no hope of the future, no hope beyond this life. We're hopeless if Jesus had not come. If Jesus had not come, we would be at war with God, war within our own hearts, war, at war with one another. We would have no means of peace. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. He's come to give us that peace. Had Jesus not come, there's where we'd be. But because Jesus has come, we do not have to live in darkness. We do not have to face death without hope. And we do not have to live without peace. The incarnation is far more uh, robust and profound than most of us think about. Without Christ coming, none of those things would be true. But because he's come, everything has changed. Christ has come to turn the world 
upside down. Well, we have two more prayers to look at. I don't know if I can get through it. I blew my tonsils out singing that song. <laughs> Isn't that a marvelous song? We all sing that every Sunday, I think. That would be, that would be something special. But uh, we're looking at chapter 2, verse 14. The, the fourth prayer is by the angels themselves. And we're familiar with this. This is one of the, the parts of the Christmas story that, that everybody, who's anybody, reads about and talks about. But we have in verse 14, we, we see the angels saying this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Uh, the angels are praising God from the heavens. We could call that a prayer. Uh, King James translated, p- translates it, Peace on earth and goodwill toward men, which sounds like a blanket thing. Like uh, now the Lord is going to bring peace over all the earth. We know that one day that will happen. He will come as the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords and the Prince of peace. And he will set up a kingdom on earth that will be a kingdom of peace. And war will be no more. We know that day does come. But it's not at the incarnation. And the angels knew that. The angels were not uh, ignorant of that truth. And so what are they saying here? Glory to God in the highest. The Lord is to be praised. And on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The issue here is this, peace was going to come on the, upon those with whom God is pleased. Who can possibly get the approval of God? How can anyone please God himself? That is the issue. Those who have, uh, who, with whom God is pleased will receive his peace. So how does that come about? It comes about because of what Christ has come to author, offer. You know, the Lord has come to give what nothing else could possibly give. And this is one of the shortcomings of, of everyone in the world who rejects Christ. We all search throughout our life trying to find something that we think will bring us happiness and peace and joy and so forth. And we look for, we look for the purpose of life. We look for, for the, dealing with our own sinfulness or whatever else we're dealing with. And we look for it in a multitude of places. And yet the scriptures are telling us there's only one place in which peace is found. True peace, peace with God, peace in our own hearts, peace for eternity. And that peace is found with the, for those for whom God is pleased. It's found with Jesus Christ. Now I'm, not, I'm going to follow that up with Simeon's prayer. We go over to chapter 2, verse 29. And Simeon is an old man. Somehow, some way, the Lord has informed him that he would see the Messiah before he died. What a wonderful thing. And so he's been waiting for that. Jesus is brought after he's born for the rite of purification at the temple. And Simeon is there. And when Simeon sees Jesus, we see it in chapter 2, verse 29. He says, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. Simeon is recognizing the Lord has answered the prophecy given to him that, that the Savior has come and he gets to see him and he's ready to go home. But as he takes Jesus in his arms, it looks like, in verse 28, he says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. As Simeon holds this little baby in his arms, he sees a whole lot more than a little baby. He sees the one who would bring the light of the world to the world, to the Gentiles, of the glory of Israel itself. That going back to what was earlier said by Zechariah, he is the light. He brings us out of the darkness and he brings us the peace that is God. Christ came to give us that light. 
Notice here, as he says these things, my eyes have seen your salvation. Not just a little baby, not even a Messiah, but the, but the salvation, what God has, has brought, which you've prepared in the, pres- in the presence of all peoples, the light for the revelation to the Gentiles, for the glory of your people Israel. Christ has come to give what nobody else could give. Simeon is the first to truly and fully recognize that. Some Jews perhaps understood that. Simeon is an example of one who does. He knows what's coming. He can die in peace because he's seen his master and what he's come to bring. If you were going to have a Christmas dinner tomorrow, and and you're going to invite a very special guest, and that very special guest is going to come, and so you have prepared a wonderful meal. You've set the table beautifully. The decorations are, are all in place. The background music is there. Everything is prepared. The food is perfect. And then someone says, well, where is the guest? And suddenly it dawned on you that nobody's invited the guest. Everything is prepared, but nobody got around to asking the person you wanted to come to come. When we think of the Christmas season, we know that much of this has been turned into a holiday celebration. And most of the world gives just, you know, just lip service to, to the incarnation. We take this time as Christians to refocus on the incarnation, to take a special time to to glorify and thank God that he sent his son to us to die for us ultimately and to be resurrected from the dead and eventually come back for us. We take the time to remember the beginning of that gospel message with the coming of Jesus Christ at the incarnation. And although the celebration of Christmas is different for most people than, than the incarnation, we take this time to especially remember what he's done for us. And if that's the case, as Christians, don't forget to invite the guest. Don't forget to remember him at this time that we give special attention to his coming. Don't forget about the guest. If you're here today and you're not sure about Jesus Christ, you have never, you're not one of those that have met the approval of God because you have never invited Jesus to to save you from your sins, today's the day to invite the guest. Today is the day to remember not just beautiful music and wonderful passages of Scripture and, and good fellowship and later on great food and gifts and all that. It's a time to invite the true guest, the true God of the universe into your life. Jesus didn't come so that we can have Christmas celebrations. He came to save you from your sins. He came that you would never be the same. He came to give you eternal and everlasting peace with him forever and ever and ever. That's why he's come. If you've never invited him into your life to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into the very peace of God, today could be that day. Wouldn't it be wonderful to look back and say, on Christmas 2023, I invited the true guest, Jesus Christ, into my life to save me from my sins. If you've never done that, we encourage you today to do that and to see us if we can help you further.